we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Bits of furniture, just stuff, loads of stuff. Have you had a kind of Marie Kondo moment? Does it bring me joy? I brought that book home and I, and I had it thrown at me by, by Rachel. John and Rachel oh, are dear. moving everyone. They're moving house. And how long have you lived in that place? Uh, eight years. So, okay, so long enough to, to accumulate crap. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing is our garage is full of two other people who said, oh, you've got loads of space. Can we put our stuff in your garage? And of course you say, yeah, no problem. No, fine. Loads of space. One of them's moved, left the village, and they said, well, can you not just sort of sort it out? Well, the answer is uh, yes, but it's probably going to cost me money to do that. Sarah, you, you're in a constant battle with the books arriving. I see you uh, tweet photographs oh. of, like, <laughs> of two bags that arrive every day. It's just... I know. I'm just worried the joys are just going to give way. I live in a, a badly converted flat, and just, I just, you know, the creaking every now and again is... Because I sort of review books, and sometimes you get like three copies of one book. You get an early proof, you yeah, get I the know. proof, and then you get the finished, finished copy. copy. Yeah. There must be a more sensible way of doing it, don't you think? Well, I suppose it would be net galley and e-readers, but you know, I'm of an age now where I just can't read on screen. It's one of the laws of this that I, I inevitably, whenever I do a clear-out of things that I've been very kindly sent, as soon as I get rid of a book, the next day it will appear on a short list or <laughs> a friend of mine will recommend it to me. Do you sell or donate? Donate. Yeah. I do, actually. I'm not just saying that. You're looking at me as if to say, well, you have to say that because this is being recorded. What I found when I just cannot go into Oxfam Books with another thing, I put a big box out on the garden wall. It's Muswell Hill, and big it, readers. It, you know, have how a book. Br- how brilliant. And you see, the thing is, that's what we're all going to have to do because... Charity shops are beginning to turn away books, aren't they? they don't totally, have, yeah. They don't can't book. There's a little library box around the corner from me on a street, you know, yeah. where people just give and take books. It's quite sweet. Well, in fact, we have, as many stations now do, a place where you can leave your books and uh, people can pick them up. And by an, a staggering coincidence, when I was coming in this morning, somebody had left a... An that old is, Penguin Books vintage copy of our book, The Dud Avocado by I, Elaine Dundee, for this episode. Statistically almost impossible for that to happen. And you yet think of it all, did. I know, isn't it incredible? I had never heard of the book we're going to discuss. And now, I've, since you mentioned it to me, I, I can't move for people mentioning it. 
it's isn't it's always very odd that I I feel a, a bit ashamed that I hadn't heard of it, but it's very beloved of women of a certain age. I can see why. But it's also, really fascinatingly, was a best... It's not like it was an obscure book in its era. It was a huge yeah, bestseller right, in its right, era. Right. And, <laughs> but I, I'm with you. I, 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 I'd heard of it. I haven't read it, but... You know. It's such a great title. Um, shall we start? It's Let's weird, start. though, isn't it, with the fashion for avocados? You'd think it would have come back well, and had well, I, think, I think we've got. I think we might have to talk avocado, yeah. For the millennial, the millennial. Are we going to toast the dulled avocado? <laughs> Let's hope so. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today you find us jiving in a dive bar off the Boulevard Montparnasse, deep in the Parisian night, downing large martinis with lost Americans still hoping to find a cafe that's open for a bowl of late-night onion soup. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund the books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And joining us today is Sarah Manning. Hello, Sarah. Hello. Sarah Manning is an author and journalist who has written a constellation of adult and YA novels. A young adult. And has, contributed <laughs> to the, the, and has contributed to The Guardian L stylist, Harper's Bazaar, and is currently the literary editor of Red magazine. Her latest adult novel... Uh, the Rise and Fall of Becky Sharp was published last week by HarperCollins. And riding high in the charts, I noticed, in the Kindle charts. Yes, I've got that little orange bestseller tag. Uh, Not that I'm refreshing my Amazon yeah. page every half hour. Uh, and couldn't really be... I was thinking there aren't many books that that could be much more backlisted than what you've done with The Rise and Fall of Becky Sharp. Could you just tell us yeah. tell us what it is? Well, the clue's in the name, really, in that it's a, it's a modern retelling of Vanity Fair, which is one of those books that everybody says they've read, but they haven't <laughs> read it, though I have actually read it now three times. Yeah, I, I, I see on Twitter where somebody was accusing you of not having read the book and you were... I think it was Lisa Evans just saying how many times have you read it and she was worried that I was going to say yeah it's my favourite book like 20 billion times it, it was a bit of opportunistic publishing I have to say that they announced that they were doing a television adaptation last year and a publisher approached me and said would you like to do it have you read Vanity Fair yeah it's my favourite book um, as I first read it at university it wasn't even a set text but I was in love with this very well-read boy. So I just positioned myself with a copy of Vanity Fair <laughs> when he was likely to pass. Very Elaine Dundee, if I may very say Very Elaine Dundee. That in the, in the CCS common room. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah and I were at the same university at approximately the same time. Really? Yeah. Yes. Amazing. So anyway, we, we keep interrupting you. So... So it's um, a modern retelling of Vanity Fair... And it's very modern. It kind of starts when Becky Sharp and Amelia Sedley leave the Big Brother house and there's kind of Instagram influencers. The Crawleys are like an acting dynasty. Matilda Crawley is kind of... She's not Maggie Smith, because that would be libelous. um, She's of that ilk. Um, And then you can't give me a character called George Osborne and not expect me to make him a Conservative MP. Brilliant. Although we then had to change his name to the more Thackerian 
George Wiley, so I didn't get sued. Lord Stain <laughs> is like a media mogul. It's very much a faithful retelling of Vanity Fair in that if you sort of put my copy over the original, kind of all the beats are hit, but it's very much a sort of satire of sort of modern manners and celebrity. And, the, and in terms of writing it, presumably because, as you say, the story beats are all there, so you're not having to reinvent the wheel... Was it fun to try and think your way through what you were going to do, or was it scarier than that? Well, I had seven weeks to write it, so that was was like... Oh, my God. So I had two weeks of just sheer sort of panic and, like, what can I do? And I'm just write commercial women's fiction and I can't (laughs) rewrite a classic. And actually, I, I swim a lot and I sort of do all my best work in the pool and I actually... So I'm going to have a swim, and I actually sort of said to the receptionist at the gym, oh, I'm just in terrible trouble, I'm going to have a swim, and if I don't have my epiphany, I'm just going to have to call my editor and say, I can't do it. <laughs> and as I was sort of doing my laps, I just, I just sort of thought about Thackeray, and kind of, when you read Vanity Fair, you can just tell that this is a man who is just enjoying himself immensely. Yeah, yeah. And kind of once I, I thought, what would Thackeray do? I just really just enjoyed myself so much and just kind of cackled all the way through writing it. There's sort of... <laughs> my favourite bit, actually, is um one of the many Crawleys, so they're all actors now. He's... um It's Pitt Younger. He's the one Crawley that isn't a successful actor but has found himself in an Allo-Allo-style sitcom, which, of course, <laughs> I had to call Good Moaning. <laughs> it's just things like that and... Towards the end of the book, it was when Time's Up and Me Too were happening, and I took the opportunity to kind of make Amelia Sedley woke. So um, it was just a joy to write, actually. Such fun. God, sounds great. Has anyone read it who hasn't read Vanity Fair? Lots, because I'm kind of... I come from a commercial women's fiction background, so there have been some reviews saying, it's a pitch-perfect retelling of Vanity Fair... But it doesn't have the heart of like your other books. There is a whole thing in commercial women's fiction. You know, you've got to make the heroine likable, but relatable. Fam- but famously, it's a novel without a hero, as yeah. Thackeray said. So there was a lot with my editor saying, "Can you warm her up a bit?" <laughs> and could she just do something really nice out of the goodness of her heart? <laughs> no. No. Because, uh... Although my Becky hasn't isn't responsible for anybody's death. And, you know, I've spoiler alert. <laughs> Well, we're here to talk with uh, Sarah about The Dud Avocado by Elaine Dundee, first published in the UK by Galance in 1958 and an immediate bestseller. But before we flaneur our way down the Champs-Élysées with Sarah, we're delighted to welcome back our sponsor, Spoke, the sharp online menswear company. Spoke designed men's trousers and now also shorts and polo shirts with a difference. They fit you and not the other way around. With their online fit finder, enter a few simple details and in under a minute you'll have a perfect fit. You can choose from almost 200 size combinations. Spoke obsess over every detail, the fabric, the lining, the fastness. Ordering from Spoke is like going to your own tailor without a hassle or expense. You get sharp, personalised design delivered in just two working days. Why am I telling you this? Because as a backlisted listener, if you go to wwwspoke london.com and place an order you'll get 20 pounds off your first order just use the code backlisted20 terms and conditions inevitably apply but first from stylish hose to stylish prose andy what have you been reading this week 
Showing your usual flair, John. So I'm going to talk for three minutes on the subject of the novel Daniel Deronda by George Ah! Eliot. All 880 pages of it. So I started reading Daniel Deronda five years ago and I got to about page 360. It's 880 pages long in my Penguin Classic edition and I gave up. Or rather, I didn't give up because I never give up, but I put it to one side uh, because it was proving quite chewy. Uh, And I thought, well, I'll come back to that. Um, And then what happened is what always happens if you do that. Of course, then I didn't go back to it. And uh, uh, and instead, I sort of had a vaguely guilty feeling about it for five years. And then I decided, because we had a few weeks off... Uh, from recording Batlisted and reading books for Batlisted, that I go back, start it again, and make sure I finished it this time. So Daniel Deronda is the, is Eliot's final novel, and it's the novel that she wrote after Middlemarch. And it felt quite strange reading it in the summer of 2018. Ezra Pound's famous phrase that literature is news that stays news. If you had to describe what Daniel Deronda is about, it's a novel about anti-Semitism, men's power over women and social inequality that was written 150 years ago. Not a bad trick to pull off. Good line. But I've also been reading this year In Search of Lost Time by Proust. And you could also say that that's a very long novel about anti-Semitism, men's power over women, women's power over men and social inequality. And it made me think actually that Ezra Pound thing Ezra Pound, who himself knew a thing or two about anti-Semitism. <laughs> Nonetheless, you know, news that stays news, absolutely. Has anyone around this table read Daniel Deronda? I have. When did you read it? I read it in that ridiculous period when you read a lot of 19th century fiction when I was at university. So I, it, I'm it, confident. I remember practically yeah, none of it. And I'm confident that, I mean, had I, I, had I read it, it, had I read it when I was at university, I would not have... I'm not saying I understood all of it now, but I'm not saying that I... I don't think I would have understood much of it then. It does a very strange thing, very forward thinking for the era, certainly, of being... It appears to be a novel about a young woman called Gwendolyn Harleth, and then at the halfway point, it turns into a novel about the Jewish community in Britain and the early philosophical points about the founding of the state of Israel and she manages to bring those two seemingly um, quite uh, separate subjects together in an ending which is again sort of fascinatingly neither happy nor unhappy it, it felt incredibly modern while simultaneously being written in that uh, beautiful Eliot prose um i found it quite challenging i don't mind challenging books in fact in fact i rather like them um but it's certainly a book that i feel um i feel that i i have improved as a reader even in the five years since i first started trying to read it uh and i found it very very rewarding not just rewarding to finish it, but rewarding to to stop and think about it and have the time to to contemplate it. I don't think there's much point. In me. I'm not going to read anything out from it. It's a it, bit pointless. It's, but it's an interesting one, though. Uh, you were, you know, to, thinking about our discussions about what you actually remember from books and the the Pierre Bayard episode we did recently. But if I go back to that book, you know, the idea that we incorporate the 
the story into our own autobiography. I can't remember anything. <laughs> I get vague, yeah. vague. I think there's an... Uh, remember there's the opening where it, she starts the story in media rays, which yeah. is like start the story in the, middle of, in the middle of the action. Now, I remember that being quite a strong way to she's start. She's in a casino. Yeah, and then... She's run away and she's in a casino and, and, and then, she's spotted by Daniel Deronda on the point of gambling away... Uh, yes, a necklace. Yes, that's that. And he buy and she she's pawned it, and he buys it yeah. back from the pawn shop. The first Jewish reference in the novel, and and leaves it for her. And she thereafter, for the whole of the novel, feels under a moral debt to him. So the part of the story of the novel is how is that moral debt paid out, which in and of itself is a fairly highfalutin and sophisticated theme to introduce into your novel quite early on. Certainly it doesn't have... It has love stories within it, but it does not have the Middlemarch sense of predestined lovers. In fact, if anything, you could read the book as a reaction to Middlemarch, mm. as trying to push the novel in directions that it hadn't, it hadn't gone. It did make me think, the devaluing of the word genius in the book world. Yeah. But when you're talking about Elliot, you're dealing with someone who is palpable genius. I always say this in regard to Elliot. You know, if you read Middlemarch or you read Elliot, you don't get on and, with and it. Did you, you, you're not a genius, you and she was. Out that you know. marvelous sentence that is the epigraph to normal people. Well, I hadn't clocked that, but yes, it's the Which the epigraph to Sally Rooney's Normal People is taken from Daniel Deronda by George Elliot, and I think actually at whatever level it must, because I loved normal it's a people so much. Sentence. Yeah, it probably pushed me back book as well. Yeah, it pushed me back in that in that direction. I wanted to ask people whether they. So it took me five years on and off to finish. What is the book that it has taken you the longest to finish? <laughs> I'm only on this earth for a short time, so I just feel Ooh. like I've got a very low tolerance for books I'm not enjoying. So fifty pages, and I'm cutting you off. Having said that, every now and again, I think I'm going to do Anna Karenina. I'm going to do it this time. And then just the, fr- the Russian names do for me every time. I just can't keep track. I love Anna Karenina. I just yeah. can't. I look at you with my most puppyish eyes <laughs> and say, do it. Do it. Do, do it. it. Do it. I might do something like um, Daily Lit, where you sign up and they email. That's how I did... Um, oh, what's the Balzac one I did? Literally, they will just email you a chunk every morning, and while I'm sort of eating my um, Cheerios, I would do a bit of Balzac. Really? It's a really really good good way to kind of get through a classic that you kind of want to read, but, you know... Do you follow the To The Lighthouse account on Twitter? No. Somebody is currently tweeting all of To The Lighthouse... Like phrase by phrase, so oh you can God. read that if it, you know, in a highly dissociative way. But uh, <laughs> that can be that can be, you know, soaked up quite easily. I've I haven't got anything quite like the Daniel Deronda book that I'm sure. Actually, I think I have. I don't think I ever finished our mutual friend, and I've I meant to because I wasn't I wasn't enjoying it. I just got and I often do that. I've got a lot of books that I know of that. They've, that um, I, and there are some I've intentionally stopped reading. I stopped reading about 20 years ago, uh, What Am I Doing Here? by Bruce Chatwin, because I, 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 rather touchingly at that time, I thought, well, I don't want to have nothing, nothing new to read by Bruce Chatwin. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
And I stopped myself reading Muriel Sparks last year because I, for the same reason, I didn't. Because you felt you were binging on them. I felt I just have to. I'd read too many too quickly, and then there wouldn't be any new ones to read. But actually, that's a sort of stupid thing. And I'm going to ask you because regular listeners might want to know how you get. How are you going on now? We're in September with. um, Oh, I'm I'm on track. I'm on track. It's weird, you know. You have that sort of early morning or middle of the night sort of terrors dread and you feel I just can't deal with anything and I, I can't bear to look at Instagram it's making me feel sick <laughs> I can't bear any of the people who are I, I don't know what you mean John so I just find Paul is or Pal well, Paul is the perfect thing it's the perfect yeah. thing back in Nick's head dealing with you know stuff now it's the war um, yeah. it's very reassuring and witty without being annoyingly mugging for laughs. It's just... Well, we'll talk about it. We're going to do a Christmas special. We are. In addition to that, though, John, what have you been reading this week? Oh, I've been reading a book which I, I really, really love. I'm, as you know, still reeling from the experience of um, reading Normal People, which I, I thought was a... I think I can say I thought it was a masterpiece. So I wasn't really thinking... I'm reading another book by an Irish woman called Milkman by Anna Burns... Uh, and it's fatter than uh, normal people and it has come with a lot of it's her third novel and she think I think Anna Burns' second book uh, or No Bones her first book was shortlisted for the Orange Prize but I really loved this it's very different I mean it couldn't be more different in a way Sally Rooney has sort of taken and created two characters you absolutely care and in, invest in it's sort of in its own way quite a traditional whereas this is much more experimental and different. It's all told from within the consciousness of an 18-year-old girl. It's set in late 70s Belfast in a Republican community, kind of closed, tight Republican community. And the narrator, the girl, um, basically the plot, such as there is in the book, is that she is, she is connected with a sinister character called the milkman who interrupts her while she's walking along the street reading Ivanhoe it's a very very tense closed community where nothing is as it seems you don't know her name she's known as uh, middle sister and she gets through it by reading and she reads 19th century fiction because she doesn't like she doesn't like the 20th century it's very very funny I'll read a tiny little passage from it just to give you the flavour but the milkman is this sinister character who is obviously a paramilitary he also grooms young girls and he then comes and joins her on a run and then she gets linked in the community's mind with, with him. It's a, a demanding read because you're in one head in that sort of Amy McBride way. It doesn't deliver its, its uh, story in a straightforward way. But it's particularly about men controlling women. I'll give you the first sentence that give you an idea of, of the kind of... Uh, it's very unique, original style. The day somebody McSomebody put a gun to my breast and called me a cat and threatened to shoot me was the same day the milkman died. And the milkman has been shot by paramilitaries. It, it's a really, really extraordinary book, I think, and it fully deserves it. It's on the man book along list. It reminded me in some... You know how we liked Priest Daddy, the, the Patricia Lockwood? Mm. It's got a similar kind of originality about okay. it. Mm. Anyway, I'll read you just one little passage. First time... I awoke, it was daylight, and I was in my bed, mentally conjugating the French verb etre. I was running through the person's tenses and cases of it in my mind. Second time I awoke, I was still in bed, thinking, well, if that's the latest effect he's had on me with his sexual prowling, I don't know how I'm going to escape from him now. 
Third time I awoke, it was from a dream of Proust, or rather a nightmare of Proust, in which he turned out to be some reprehensible contemporary 1970s writer, passing himself off as a turn-of-the-century writer, which apparently was why he was being sued in court in the dream by, I think, me. At that point, I fell asleep, and then the final time I awoke, for I continued this waking and sleeping many times before waking up properly, I knew I'd turn a corner and was now on the mend. The reason I knew this was because of Frey Bentos. I was doing an elaborate Frey Bentos steak and kidney pie fantasy in my head. I'd got the tin out of the cupboard, took off the lid, put it in the oven. Then I set out a plate, knife, fork and mug of tea for myself. Even in bed, in my head, the aroma of that pie was making my mouth water. Thank God, then, in the next second it was done. I got it out of the oven, fainting with anticipation. I was about to tuck in when my bedroom door burst open. It was we sisters. Again, as one, they sprang into the room. It's a lot of that. It's a great achievement, I think, to keep you going through what is, yeah, it's a, not a short book, it's 300, 350 pages. But very original. The story uh, is, I've, I've thought about it a lot since. I mean, it's a, a book that you absolutely go book back to and want to re read and reread. I mean, Ireland is obviously a great place for, it's a great place for the literature, <laughs> he said. <laughs> <laughs> blindingly banal insight but she's original in the way that Anne Wright's original okay. or that the, in a funny kind of way even in the way that Roddy Doyle's original it, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a great book I really really recommend it thanks John <laughs> <laughs> thanks John for talking about Milkman that's fine Andy <laughs> um, yeah. now it's commercials <laughs> so the book we're here to talk about with Sarah is the Dud Avocado by Elaine Dundee, and we're also going to talk a bit, bit about Elaine Dundee's follow-up novel, which is called The Old Man and Me. I think you can see them as a pair, and they can be understood in relation to one another, but we're going to talk, first of all, an avocado pair. <laughs> I think we're going to talk... I'm so sorry. Uh, I think we're going to talk... I think we're going to talk first about The Dud Avocado. Let me just read out the blurb from... I've got a Virago edition here, a Virago modern classic. This is to set the plot up for uh, listeners who might not be familiar with the book. Sally J. Gorse is a woman with a mission. It's the 1950s, she's young, and she's in Paris. Having dyed her hair pink and vowed to go native in a way not even the natives can manage, she's busy getting drunk, bedding men, losing money, losing jewellery, and losing God knows what. The Dud Avocado is the story of Sally J's Rite of Passage, a charming and hilarious novel that gained instant cult status on first publication and remains a timeless and inspiring portrait of a woman hell-bent on living. I can sort of see why I was first attracted to it, <laughs> being the kind of girl, sort of when I was in my early 20s, of thinking I was living life, not in Paris though, but just going out for a night and ending up like in a car park in Zone 5 <laughs> with some of these knickers on my head in the morning. <laughs> well, then I ask, somewhat gingerly, do you remember where you were when you first read this book? Probably not, actually, just because I was going out so far. <laughs> OK, all right. But I can remember... The last time I read it before I swatted up for the podcast, which, fittingly enough, was I went to Paris seven years ago. It's like, what am I going to take to read? I'll take the Dud Avocado. Mm, yeah, perfect. For the full kind of surround sound. You're lovely. 
HD ready effect, yeah. And it's very, uh, it's the Paris of the 1950s. So there's lots, it's the, I would say in, in several ways, it's the Paris of the, the Gene Kelly film, An American in Paris. Yeah, yeah, It's yeah. very much sort Even of... Even with the beards, to, you know, the... the yeah, the, 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 yeah the, the hardcore. The hardcore, we love the it. Beat, there's poets and yeah. there's beatniks and there's artists and there's pavement cafes and the Sorbonne and... It's jive. that Paris. Jive. Jive, yeah. yeah. But it's very much an American in Paris in that most of the people that she meets are sort of rich Americans yeah. being authentic with sort of, you know, the benefit of large trust funds and sort of wanting to be sort of artists, which, of course, we love. Yeah. And yet... <laughs> <laughs> she's very likeable. Because the way you she's describe it there... She's insanely likeable. Yeah. That's the yes. thing. It's, I mean, if you're, I, I can't imagine anybody not... It's hard to imagine not enjoying this, isn't it? Mm. Um, I was—I didn't know anything about it. I had never heard of it. it felt, I feel a bit silly now because I wish, I, like you, I wish I'd discovered it when I was sort of in Paris when I was eighteen. Because I can't think of anything. It'd be the most, the most joyful companion, and and she's Sally J is just. The voice is just brilliant. I mean. It's interesting because this is like I think my fourth or fifth read now, and I realise I just cannot remember anything that happens in the novel because <laughs> all I know is Sally J. Course because she just kind of roars off. Yeah, the that's page. that's really true. Actually, I think Rachel Cook says in her introduction that the the it's all about the voice. Yeah, yes. the, the plot that there is a plot, but you'd be hard pressed to. Um, does it recap it? She read. Well, would you? Or would I you? Could, could you? I can actually. Go on, do it. Okay, I'm ready. So, I mean, it's just got such a great beginning to a novel. Um, in that she's got, she's dyed her hair pink like all the French tarts do, and she's wearing an evening gown because all her clothes are in the laundry, and the laundry has really complicated hours, and she has really complicated hours, and their complicated hours don't mesh up. So within like the first page, she's met this American boy that she vaguely knows, falls madly in love with him, and then. This other guy comes along, Teddy, who's actually her lover. And the only reason he's her lover is because he's already got a wife and a mistress. So she <laughs> thought, oh, that's quite a glamorous person mm. to lose my virginity to. And then she kind of... She loves Larry, this American guy, but he just is quite dismissive of her love and she wants to be an actress and he's putting on plays. So she, she, she acts in the plays and then she loses her passport. That's quite a big thing. And then she sort of beds a couple of sort of artists, but her heart's not really in it. And then they all decamp to Biarritz and then there's a bullfighter. How am I doing so well? I, As I say, the plot... El Wiro. El Wiro. But what makes it work is there's a sort of energy and sparkle in the true sense and wit to how she tells you the story, it, which is really distinctive. I, I, I mean, this book always gets compared to Breakfast at Tiffany's, doesn't it? And yet it's more... Crackles more than Breakfast at Tiffany's just, does. Well, if Holly Golightly had actually written <laughs> Breakfast yeah. at Tiffany's instead of yeah, Truman yeah. Capote, I think there's a link to the screwball heroines of the 1930s as well. And Definitely, even to, she and, mentions screwball and, and, a lot. Anita Luce, it's it's just, I mean, the, the word I'm always is moxie. You know, she's got this incredible <laughs> kind of yeah. incredible self confidence, and she and yet there's it, it's also 
There's some that wonderful bit towards the end where she she's basically trying to figure out what kind of person she is. And she, she says, my problem is I'm a complicated person. We think it's really funny, it's really joyous. But certainly this time reading it and the bits that I picked out and I posted... Post-it-ed? Post-noted it? Post-it noted. <laughs> that I really liked. There's something actually sort of quite tragic yeah. about it. And I just was thinking to myself... Actually, in the dad avocado, just sort of the desperate drinking and the not wanting yeah. to be alone. But Jean Reese. Well, this is it. It's all the elements of a Jean Reese novel. But there's just something. <laughs> even when she's a tragic, she's kind of being funny. And and so whereas Jean Reese is just like everything is awful, and now I'm just going to sort of drink myself into a stupor and maybe put my head in the oven. She's like, you know what? I'm just going to sort of dress up in a dirndl and with my pink hair, and I'm just going to sort of go out and get drunk and fall off my heels. Have you got a bit you could you, you could read us from the um, beginning of the book? Okay, well the really controversial bit of the Dada Avocado. I mean, in our sort of modern ways where anything goes, it just seems very tame now. But it was a huge kind of cause celeb at the time. So it's it's like page 20. And so she's she's met Larry and decided that she's in love with him. And she's sort of had a little altercation with Teddy, her married lover. And they're in a cafe near the Sorbonne they at this are. point, aren't they? And he's saying, take it easy... Nah. Take it easy, he was saying. Everything's going to be all right. He took my hand away from my drink and held it gently in his own. By now, I was maybe drunk. I don't know, but in such a state of uncontrolled passion that the mere touch of his hand on mine charged through my body like a thousand volts. You know how it is. Some people can hack and hack away at you and nothing happens at all. And then someone else just touches you lightly on the arm and it happens. Yes, I mean, that's what happened. I remember looking down at the table and seeing my fingers clinging and curling around his. I remember being quite aware of this, but at the same time, quite unable to stop myself. And I put his hand up to my cheek and caressed his knuckles with my mouth. A split second suspended itself into infinity in the air, while my heart pounded furiously and I kept kissing and kissing his knuckles and then it was over. So, So I'm reading from the Penguin Classic, which I think I'm just going to tell you when it was printed because this is actually so quite... So that was printed... My edition is 1961. Pre-Lady Chatley. Yeah. So... What actually happens in the Virago edition is the word came because she just reached her crisis through the mere touch of a hand. And um, in Life Itself, her memoir, she does actually sort of talk about publishing the book with Golance and actually having lunch with Golance himself and turning up with, um, I think it's a biography, um, Kate... Oh, Dylan Thomas's wife, Caitlin Thomas. Thomas, her biography, and said, well, look, she says orgasm, why can't I? And Golance is just, no, no, <laughs> no, it's very unseemly. So, But then it's reinstated, isn't it? It's so so he, he, he won't let that past in the first editions, like that Penguin edition, and then she arranged for it to be reinstated in all yes. subsequent ones. So. In fact, before I left the house, I had to go and find my more recent Virago modern classic (laughs) just to make sure that she had come. (laughs) 
Excellent. Can we hear a clip now? This is an interview that Elaine Dundee did actually on the publication of that memoir, Life Itself, circa 2001 or two, with Molly Barnes. And she's just been asked, how did you settle on becoming a writer? It is the only thing you can do without being asked. I mean, you cannot be an actress unless somebody asks you to be an actress. And after I had my child, uh, my daughter, uh, I said to myself, I'm not going to, to audition anymore. You know, they know what I can do. Uh, you know, they, uh, they can call me, I won't call them. And they didn't. But writing surprises me. It, it absolutely surprises me. I thought that, you know, that my whole body of work was actually uh, very different, each one different setting. You know, I was a moving target, in other words. And I found out, no, they all have the same thing. And it's the old Western gimmick of a stranger comes to town, to which I add, I am that stranger. And together with the reader, let me take you through this place and explain it. And we will all get to know what we get to know at the end and make some sense out of it. <laughs> she, she sounds like a woman that's had a few cocktails. Well, so famously, Elaine Dundee was married to the critic Kenneth Tynan. They had a very stormy relationship that we're not going to dwell on, but suffice it to say, neither of them treated one another very well. And when their daughter, Tracy Tynan, published her memoir, Wear and Tear, a couple of years ago, uh, Anthony Quinn reviewed it in The Observer and said, this is one curtain behind which I wish I hadn't peeked. Uh, (laughs) they They were pretty... I mean, the thing about Life Itself, I read some of Life Itself, her memoir, and what's clear about Elaine Dundee, a bit like Kenneth Tynan, is that they were both ferociously ambitious. They were most interested in uh, who they could attract to come and sit at their table. You know, the, the, the parade of celebrities that runs yeah. through life itself is extraordinary in terms of some of the great writers and artists and actors of that era. Um, but it also slightly explains why she didn't go on to have a more illustrious literary career. You know, she writes three novels, yeah. the third of which I takes her... I didn't even know she'd written the third, actually. You know, it doesn't come out until 1974... She writes several biographies. She wrote a biography of Peter Finch. She wrote a very famous book, I had, which I knew, but I didn't know it was by her, called Elvis and Gladys, yeah. about Elvis Presley and his, his mother. Tynan was, was, it was widely perceived, had had his nose put out of joint by the fact that his wife had done the thing that he wanted to do. Yeah, written you know, He was famous for a critic, and she'd come out and written, at the first attempt, a bestseller. He famously said to her when he read it, this is going to be a bestseller. Yeah. yeah. So he's and then, critical. And, then he was, and it was, that's the thing we should say about this. This wasn't a cult book when it was published. This was a big bestseller. Yeah. I mean, she actually sort of actually in life itself talks about how smooth sailing it was, the whole process of mm. sort of publication. Um, but it's interesting to me. I know that you don't want to sort of dwell on Kenneth Tynan, but with the Dutch avocado, I did sort of read it a bit as, you know, men explaining things to her. Yes. But there's also a real undercurrent of rage, but just also sort of like a real sort of world weariness to her. Because a lot of the things that men are explaining to her is herself. So it's all, let me tell you about yourself, Sally J. Yeah, yeah. There's just this one scene where she's actually um, 
breaking up with her married lover or sort of trying to. He doesn't take it very well when she wants to sort of dump him. And sort of in the end, they have a big argument and he calls her a slut and tells her to get out. And there's just this... She just says, I reflected wearily that it was not easy to be a woman in these stirring times. I said it then and I say it now. It just isn't our century. Mm-hmm. And there's just a, sort of a lot of things like that and having sort of read life itself which I hadn't before and then sort of going back to read sort of the Dada Avocado it was just sort of very sort of interesting to me that I can just I think I can sort of see the cracks well in her marriage. there's another bit here a very, very short bit about dinner parties quite late in the book where she's yeah. talking about the challenges what were the rules of hosting dinner parties she says the amount of jumping up and down required on the part of both hosts and guests to get the meal assembled and in eating order kept my stomach in a constant turmoil. It had rather the same effect on the conversation, which settled down only after the last dish had been cleared away and we women were busy at the sink washing up. For the female guest, the washing up was then followed by a sort of homage to the household gods, rites which involved unqualified and highly vocal admiration of everything in sight. After that, we were allowed to listen to the menfolk for a while, and after that, it was bedtime. <laughs> that's that's the, that is the grit in the book, oh, I think. I agree with you, Sarah. The idea that she's constantly, where am I, how can I express my freedom yeah. within the constraints of what men are expecting of me at this time and, and what... It, Society is yeah. expecting of me at this I mean, time. It's interesting. I mean, again, we're not dwelling on time, but he came home and th- famously threw it out the window, um, saying, "You know, when I married you, you were an actress, not a writer." And then the next day, he you know, relented and said, "You know, there's love. It's, there's love on every page." And he bound a nice copy for her. And the other thing I loved about it was that Gallant, when she hated the title, he said it sounded like a cookbook. <laughs> Which is, I love this. He wanted it. He said it needed a, a subtitle, La Vie Amoureuse of Sally J in Paris. It's such a publisher thing to do. It's basically, you haven't got confidence in this. We have to tell people that it's like, a, it's like the argument <laughs> over a chick lit cover. You, we need to make them do know. Do you know what the compromise they reached was? Oh, well, this is brilliant, isn't it? So it's yeah. on the front cover, that his subtitle, but is it's it? not inside the book. Inside the book, it says the subtitle on the cover is the decision of us, the publisher, and not the author. <laughs> So The Old Man and Me is the novel that she published six years after The Dud Avocado. I hadn't read either of these books before, and I have to say, I really like The Dud Avocado. It's a very unusual moment on Batlist. We almost never do this. I really like The Dud Avocado. I preferred The Old Man and Me, and, and I'm happy to say that there are personal reasons for that, one of which is it's set in London in the early 1960s. What I found so fascinating about it was I'm used to reading London novels of that era by British people, usually men. So to read a a swinging London, quote-unquote, novel by a woman who not only that doesn't really like swinging Londoners and incredibly rude about most (laughs) most of the things that that were happening in Britain at that time, I found incredibly funny. It's also a very black comedy. You know, all the stuff that I think is held back in The Dud Avocado is pushed up to the surface... Let's it's got a plot. D- no, it's yeah. got a plot as well. You know, it's got a proper <laughs> three-act structure to it. I disagree. I, d- I think we're going to have a heated debate no. now. Good. Because I like the old man of me, and it does have a plot in that <laughs> there's this American girl called Honey Flood who's come over to 
London to meet this guy called C.D. McKay, who basically was married to her stepmother, and when her stepmother died, he inherited her fortune, which was actually Honey Flood's fortune. And she's going to basically kill him and get her money. And she's not fussy how she does it. She thinks she might bed him to death. Then she thinks that she might, like, <laughs> poison him. So I kind of... That is a plot. You know, there's lots of things going on there. And I did sort of like the Becky Sharp aspect. She said when she was writing it, she wanted to create the fashion for the angry young man in literature, British literature at that time, Jimmy Porter. What you've got here is a anti-heroine who is constantly testing your patience... I really like that. Well, I see the Dodd Avocado as kind of the debut album. Well, you just think you might never get a chance and you just throw everything yeah. at it. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it just sings. There's just a sort of beauty to it. You know, Sally J. Gorse is just one of those characters that you don't meet very often. And I think it's why so many sort of people love it. Whereas with The Old Man and Me... I mean, I love 60s Difficult swing. second album. Exactly. <laughs> I love 60s swinging London as much as the next girl, but I did find... Paris in the 50s. Yeah, yeah, I'm I just, found look, it bully, Andy. I just found there were bits I'm, I'm where just, people were saying clever things to each other at parties. Sarah, I'm just saying, Doris, Doris Lessing said it's as full of rye charm as the dad avocado. Well, I don't like Doris Lessing. Gore Vidal <laughs> said it's a, a witty black comedy of manners, a sort of hipster Daisy Miller. Well, John Davenport in The Observer said of the dad avocado, <laughs> it's rich, invigorating and deceptively simple to the taste. One falls for Sally J from a great height. And Gracho Marx said sentence. about that, I'm coming out dad avocado, largely because I haven't read The uh, Old Man and Me, but I'm, com- I'm just instinctively coming out. I had to tell someone, and it might as well be you since you're the author, how much I enjoyed the dad avocado. It made me laugh, scream and guffaw, which incidentally is a great name for a law firm. <laughs> Was it Hemingway who said you found your voice because you... He said, uh, you know, it took me a long time because I never listened to anybody, whereas she's... Uh, the diary section has some of the funniest writing mm. I think I've read for a long time. May the 11th, Saturday, still raining. Larry and Missy just don't appear anymore except occasionally for meals. Here is the story of Bax's life. He was born in Canada. He was raised in Canada. He went to Toronto University and has never been out of Canada before. He doesn't know what he wants to do, but would like it to be something artistic. she's just so great at writing people just that real knack of within a couple of lines she can just sketch out somebody and you know exactly who they are there's a great bit when she has this her first real relationship with a painter called Jim who thinks she's terribly sophisticated and she says the trouble was of course and she's kind of bored by him and ends up leaving him but she says, the trouble was, of course, that what Jim really ideally needed at that point was some nice, simple, outdoor bohemian girl, brown-haired, with rain in it. As I said, I don't know what he saw in me, but then I don't know what on earth I saw in him either, for that matter. It seems incredible that I, who had spent all this time in Paris, adrift, so to speak, in an uncharted o- ocean of raging passions, should be knocked over by so small a wave. And yet he was, I suppose, my first real relationship. The disagreement we always had, quarrel would be too strong a word 
was about my refusing to go and live with him, move in with him under his roof. There always seemed to me something so sturdy, sweated and dirndl skirted about living mm. with a man you're not married to. I mean, it was too intensely domestic for one thing. The next thing you knew, you were darning socks and cooking. And to be quite honest, there were some phone calls I wouldn't have wanted to take with him in the room and some that, frankly, I couldn't. It's just great. Mm. I just think with the Dada Avocado, it is just that tragedy comedy. It's light and shade. And there's just... I just will always sort of love a novel and cheer for a novel, but it's just somebody trying to figure out who the hell they are. I mean, it reminded me a bit of kind of Catcher in the Rye, just that whole sort of thing about yeah, 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 I can see that, and yeah. And kind of, everybody's kind of obsessed with people being I mean, authentic. And, and she is know, the precursor, I know it gets it gets trotted out I don't, in the reviews I've read, but she is the precursor to Carrie Bradshaw and possibly even Bridget Jones in terms of that kind of, I mean, I think she's much more joyous than either of those two characters. She's younger as well. Yeah. I mean, it just, it does remind me so much of, sort of my early 20s, just being that girl that in the end thank god you sort of grow out of where you lock yourself out of your house regularly you know um there's just yeah i mean she's ho- just, she's hopeless like a jean reese hero- heroine in, in that sense of being undone by alcohol and, and and forming kind of liaisons that she's not really getting much out of but she's making really bad decisions and i i like that let's hear a clip now of elaine dundee talking about what it was like to be in Paris and London in the 50s and 60s. How did I get to England? Went to Paris. Went to Paris as an actress. I thought I can get work there because there was some Americans there doing lots of films. You know, this is post-war. Post-war was an absolutely, the 50s was an absolutely wonderful, wonderful time. We'd won the war. We were alive. And there was an explosion of culture. Okay, went to Paris. Then I thought, yeah, it's, it's hard. I speak French well, but, you know, but I can't get away with it. And England, let's face it, you know, speaks English. And uh, so I, I better see what I can do over there. So I went over there. I was in a um, poetry reading on the BBC. All of this led to my meeting Ken, Kenneth Tynan. Well, he opened the door for me and I walked through. <laughs> it should be in London, you know. They had particularly won the war because they stood alone for a while, if you remember. And it was an explosion of culture. And uh, the point was that everyone wanted to meet him. I mean, Ava Gardner would call and say, uh, I'm here because I'm doing Magambo, but, we, but we've got a break and I've come to England. Can I come over? You know, it was, I mean, that just kept happening. Yeah, if you like a name to be dropped from a great height, then, uh, <laughs> then life itself <laughs> is the book for you. I'd like to say something else about The Old Man and Me, and I, I would sort of like to say to listeners, I think the, book, the two books are worth reading together because, in a sense, The Old Man and Me is like the evil twin of the Dud Avocado. It's like the Dud Avocado yeah. from the darkest timeline. Something bad has happened to what we could call the Elaine Dundee heroine, as we would call the Jean Reese heroine, in the five or six years between these two yeah. books. And we kind of know now what it was. I'd just like to read a little bit. This is from The Old Man and Me. This is quite near the end. And I thought this was just a tremendous piece of writing. She and her lover, C.D., a.k.a. Cyril Connolly, are, uh, well, here, here we go. They're in pretty bad shape. We were in pretty bad shape by then, both C.D. and I. I was smoking the roof off my mouth. I'd lost 15 pounds and any interest in food. I ate about every other day. On the other hand, I was drinking a great deal. Drink had become important to me. 
It kept me going for long stretches at a time, although in the end, passing out around every three nights as I did, it tired me dreadfully, so that I was sleeping well into most afternoons. Actually, I kept myself going on a blend of nicotine, caffeine, alcohol, barbiturates, stimulants and a modest use of narcotics. Only four or five puffs per evening on the communal marijuana stick, never more than one spoonful of hashish jam at a time. After a while, I was able to balance one stimulant or sedative against another, rather like Alice nibbling on the two sides of the mushroom that made her grow or shrink, with such deafness that by a dash of this, a few grains of that and a puff of the other, I could play the most indescribably delicate airs on my psyche. Heard melodies are sweet, but those unheard. I cry now at their memory, blurred though they be. Sometimes I would arrange my pills neatly on my bureau top. Dexedrine, Dexamil, Drinamil, Benzedrine, Librium, Seconal, Veginin, etc., etc. Anything I could get my hands on in neat rows, spansules to the front in their pretty two-tone capsule jackets, deep green and white, or plum and bright blue, the tiny pill grains of contrasting colours sparkling through the transparent celluloid. Then the shorties, those heart-shaped happy pills of soft, musty mauve, pale blue or apple green, with that faint incision down their middles, a scattering of the stark white bennies, and finally the vitamin pills, vitamin C forte, just for the hell of it, tailored in chic yellow and brown costumes, and looking at them, I would feel within them, or rather with them within me, the possibilities of a whole symphony. First movement, gulp. Dexedrine, allegro. Second movement, slurp. Gin and tonic, andante, spansule, poof, minuet. Third movement, benzedrine, scherzo, rondo and collapse. Ah, that skirtsoid rag. Or how about going along with those programme notes of Beethoven's sixth? Awakening of serene impressions on arriving in the country, a soupçon of hashish jam. Seen by the brook, a touch of drinamil. A merry gathering of peasant folk, a couple of scotches. Thunderstorm, a couple of hundred more. Glad and thankful feelings after the storm. A mill town and a second owl. I don't know. Something like that. <laughs> and that paragraph Bravo. is, first of all, that is a, that is a is real a tour de force, that paragraph. Brilliant. But also, brilliant. capping it with the, I don't know, something like that. You see, for me, that's the writer of the Dud Avocado, but she's turned it all up a notch. But that, I think, for me, though, The Old Man and Me is just a novel without hope. But what, you know, we know what she well, wants. I like it. But just, <laughs> the Dada Avocado is just somebody on the cusp and mm. you just root for her. Mm-hmm. In a, I mean, ironically, from the woman that wrote sort of Vanity Fair, we wrote Vanity Fair, I was sort of really adamant that I wasn't going to sort of warm Becky Sharp up. I just, I don't root for Honey Flood in the way that Sally J. Gorse is just, you know, my, my girl. Yeah, yeah. And you just, you just want her to be all right. Whereas with Honey Flood, I don't want to sort of give away the ending, but even uh, when she gets what she thinks she wants, it's just despair. I feel like with the old man. What the what the ending of the old man and me? Yeah, it's bleak. I feel like. That is just we're going full Gene Reese by the end of the. Yes, but that's this is our our, these are our different temperaments. That is that's I think one of the reasons I prefer it because it's blacker, things have curdled, but then I'm that sounds like you have to choose one or the other. I don't think you do have to choose one or the other. I'm I'm fascinated that the old man and me was not a commercial success. 
But I found, even though we've just sort of said that the plot in The Dark Avocado is kind of mostly incidental, I found The Old Man and Me a quite woolly read, actually. Mm. I just sort of found it went off on tangents. I mean, even in The Dark Avocado, she is a writer who's very fond of just people saying clever things to each other <laughs> at parties. Yeah, yeah. For like several pages and just sort of, you know... And again, it's just a lot of men talking... Yeah. Um, at her, which I don't have a lot of time for, no. really. Um, but I just sort of love that sense of, you know, here's a, a girl sort of finding herself and you just sort of feel that she will find herself and the, herself that she finds will be fabulous. Where do you think she is now? Sally J. If Sally she's still J. here, where is she? What oh, did she do? She's, just, she's got several rich... Every husband was richer than the last. Yeah, because there's, no yes. there's no way Max ramming. She's in Malibu, you know, she's a bit sort of decrepit, but she looks fantastic in a poochy caftan. And she's saying to Jorge, the pool boy, I'll teach you to tango if you can make me laugh again. There's, there's so many gorgeous details in it. When she goes to see her friend Judy, she's, and she's always pacing around in the room. But there's that brilliant bit where she says that she's pacing around and she's going, they're corrupt corrupt i kept saying to myself over and over again as i paced around the room it was the first time i'd ever used that word about people i actually knew <laughs> and again the idea that i could take a moral stand or rather that i couldn't avoid taking one filled me with the same confusion it had that morning i mean she's got more depth than a yes. Laure laurie lee or, or you know yeah i mean my one of my sort of favorite bits um sort of andy sort of read out the start of it and it's going back to that scene about cooking so she's with this artist jim bright who's yeah. just really pulling her down and <laughs> um <she's dull. laughs> and they they mix with other sort of artists and their girlfriends so she's just somebody that shouldn't be sort of corralled so he says we must have the dewards to dinner here next week said jim to me one afternoon after we spent a weekend in their windswept hut just off the coast of Brittany. why can't we take them out it's not the same. What about the cooking? What do you mean, what about the cooking? I mean, I can't cook. You can't cook? Why, good Lord, Sally J. I thought every girl knew how to cook. He looked at me, his little Floradora girl, and gave me a very wry sort of, some women are made for only one thing, smile. Then he shook his head hopelessly. Marion DeWald cooks, he said grimly. She does all the cooking and looks after two kids as well. I tried to remember one minute that whole weekend when Marion and I went either feeding people or clearing up from doing it or preparing to do it again, and presumably she never stopped doing it. But I couldn't quite see why just because she did, I should... I mean, here I was, practically fresh out of the egg. Everything was so new to me, and here was everybody telling me to stop drifting and start living in this world, telling me to start cooking and sewing and cleaning, and I don't know what. And that, to me, is just the mm. crux of mm. Sally J. Course mm -hmm. and the Dud Avocado, that she's just this free, restless, chaotic spirit and just all the men that she meets just kind of want to put her on straight and narrow. <laughs> she's got Take the... the joy she's, out. You know what, the thing about the dad avocado is it's really got that life force, hasn't it?
It's got in the same way. The comparison with Catcher in the Rye is a good one. Yeah, yeah. Because it's, it's got that same that adolescent that need to be right. You know yeah. that that kind of forcing your way on because you have the energy and the will to express yourself. Well, it's interesting. This book keeps getting reprinted and reprinted. It's a classic, isn't it? I mean, to me, sort of the old man and me, I'd had it on my shelf for ages and this was the thing that made me... Yeah. Re- it will never be a reread. Whereas, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, the dad avocado, I just keep coming back to it. All I want to say, my, my final word on the old man and me is I can see that if you read and loved the dad avocado, you might not read and love this... But if, on the other hand, you like you've absolute read and loved beginners. Absolute Beginners yeah. or uh, The Low Life, the low life yeah. or Capital by Maureen Duffy, yeah. you should read The Old Man and Me Cash. because it's a book about yeah. London from a perspective that very, very rarely gets written about. I think that we've got to, unfortunately, uh, say au revoir to Sally J. Gorse. I do feel that you, it's a friend for life thing, isn't it? You find characters like that and you think, I will go, I will go back to this book. I can't imagine anything more fun to read in, uh, in Paris. So Post anyway, Brexit. <laughs> it's a, it's anyway, anyway, this is why you prefer the old. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, rough, rough, rough. Yeah, because that's what Britain's going to be. Yeah. Like. Ooh. Yeah. six months from now. Brown, um, oh man. Anyway. That's all we have time for. Huge thanks to Sarah, to our producer, Nikki Birch, to Unbound, and to our leg-enhancing sponsor, Spoke. You can download all 74 Backlisteds, plus follow up all the links, clips, and suggestions for further reading on our website, backlisted.fm, and, of course, you can still contact us on Twitter, Facebook, and Boundless. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed it as much as we all have. Uh, if so, please consider leaving a review with stars if you feel so moved on iTunes or whichever platform from which you obtain your oral pleasure. Well, thank you all, folks. Uh, we'll be back in a fortnight. Until then, it's Simonic. <laughs> <laughs> You can choose to listen to Batlisted with or without adverts. If you prefer to listen to it without adverts, you can join us on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash backlisted, where you also get bonus content of two episodes of Locklisted, the podcast where we talk about the books and films and music that we've been listening to over the last uh, couple of weeks.